Well, I'm thankful this morning to be able to celebrate Sunday with you after Thanksgiving. And as a result of Thanksgiving, we are going to be in a different passage this morning. I'm going to be in Psalm chapter 30. We're going to take a break from 1 Corinthians and be in Psalms. So if you turn with me to Psalm chapter 30, we'll be there as part of our worship and study this morning. Psalm 30, there are 12 verses, and we're going to read through all of them. It says, A psalm of David, a song at a dedication of the temple. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up, and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought my soul from Sheol. You have restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, O you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will it thus praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. Amen. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this Thanksgiving psalm, a psalm that's very fitting to our season, a psalm which the psalmist thank you in light of everything that's happening in his life, and certainly we can relate to that. We can relate to the good things. We can also relate to the trials and the tribulations. We pray, Father, that as we are studying this psalm, that you would inspire us to compare the psalmist's life to our own lives, how we may apply it and how we may feel the same way about you as the psalmist does, so that we learn and grow and so that we may be drawn closer to you. We thank you for this Sunday, and we pray that your spirit be with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. What are you thankful for? In the Thanksgiving season, our family has a little tradition, a little tradition we call the Grateful Turkey. It's a little tradition which we cut off from a cardboard paper or just some kind of a big, large piece of paper, a shape of uh, a turkey, and it's an oblong shape or a, a round shape that symbolizes the turkey, and then we cut out little pieces of paper that symbolize the feather. And we're supposed to stick the feather on top of the turkey. And each feather is supposed to designate one thing we're thankful for. And we have to surround this turkey shape, shape or this turkey, which is on the wall now, with all the feathers, and it'll be 30 or 40 different feathers which you will put on this turkey. And so we have kids do this activity, and it's a fun activity for them to do. It's a fun activity for us to do as adults. The kids first, they do this activity. They would be easily thinking about things they should be thankful for. They would say, well, you know, I'm thankful for my mom. I'm thankful for my dad. I'm thankful for my grandma. I'm thankful for my grandpa. I'm thankful for food. I'm thankful for house. I'm thankful for all these things. But then after a while, they begin to struggle. You know, you have to list about 30 or 40 things. And so we begin to struggle on what are you thankful for? He's there thinking, okay, what am I going to write? So they begin to write things that which you normally would not think of, like 
your dentist. You're thankful for your dentist. You're thankful for your teacher at school and the teacher's name. You write on a piece of paper. And so it was a good and wonderful activity for us because a lot of times in life we don't contemplate on the things which God's given to us which we should be thankful for. In fact, we'll forget about them. We take so many things in this world for granted and it's a good activity that we should remember all the good things that God has given to us. You see, in the very beginning, we were also given good things from God. We're given life. We're given breath. We're given food that is in the beginning of creation. In the very beginning of our creative purpose, the creative plan of God, we were given by God so many good things. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 16, it says that God tells us we may eat of every tree from the tree in the garden. We eat of every tree. We may eat of the blessings of God in this world. God also has given us to a purpose. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it says that we can have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and all the earth and every creature that creeps on the earth. We're given a purpose to rule over the heavens and the earth as God himself rules. We're the representatives of God. We should be thankful to the Lord. However, as we are today, so easily forgetting of the goodness of God, Adam and Eve also forgot the goodness of God in their lives. Very quickly, they forgot why they should be thankful to the Lord. This is a story of the garden. In the very story, Satan came to us, came to them and said to them, did God really say why did God not allow you to eat of that thing, that fruit? He said, you may eat of every fruit, but why not that fruit? Even though humanity, humanity, all of us are given so many good things of God, we thought of that one thing, that one thing which we don't have from God, and we were not grateful. Instead of being grateful for all the good things, we looked at that one thing and said, you know what, God, you're not good to us. You have not given to us what we want. So we disobeyed God. We sinned against God in the very beginning, all rooted in a very hard attitude of not being thankful. We were not thankful to the Lord for all the good things. Instead, we looked at one thing and said, you know what, God, you're not good. So we sinned against God. As well as sinned against God, we brought sin to the world. And sin is that ugly word, that hurtful word, that ugly action, which is destroying this world, destroying our relationships. And one of the reasons why sin is so ugly is because much of the root of sin is unthankfulness. We're not thankful to God, so therefore we feel that we have to steal, lie, and cheat in order to get whatever it is that we want. We're not thankful to others, so therefore we hurt others or we take advantage of others. Being unthankful is the root of many sins which we experience in this world. It's destroying us and destroying our relationships. Our God... However, in his greatness and in his blessedness and his loving kindness, is calling us back to himself so that we would be that thankful creature in his sight again. See, we need to be restored to God. We need to understand how good God is and our current state. Apart from God, we're not able to. We are trapped in our sin nature. We don't see the goodness of God. However, God, even though we don't see his goodness, even though we deserve God's righteous judgment, has sent his son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the substitute for our sins. He's given his son Jesus as a gift for us so that we may be restored back to God again. Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, 
a perfect life which you and I would never be able to live because we're not sinless like Jesus is. And yet he did not live it for himself, but he lived it for us so that we may be given that life when we believe unto him. And he died on the cross to pay for the punishment that's due us for our sins, a punishment certainly we could not pay because we would be destroyed eternally in hell, but Jesus suffered that punishment for us so that we don't have to. That he rose again from the dead to show us that if we believe unto him, we will also rise again. That he did not just save us once and leave us to our own lives of sin again, but he saved us for all eternity. He saves us so that we will have ex- this eternal salvation. He continued to save us. He continued to forgive us. He ensures us that we will be there with him in heaven when he rose again from the dead. What a wonderful, wonderful grace which God has given to us. And this Thanksgiving season, if there are anything we should be thanking God for, we should be thanking God for salvation. We should be thanking God for his gift of saving us unto himself. And certainly this is what Psalm chapter 30 is all about. The psalmist David himself here is thanking God for his salvation. And the three aspects to his life, his saved life, in which he thanks God for. We'll see these three aspects in display here in this passage. And the first aspect is this. He thanks God for God's physical protection. He thanks God for God's physical protection of his life. We see this in verse 1 through 4. And it says, and I read again. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple, I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Lord, my God, I cry to you for help, and you have healed me. O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, restored to me life from among those who go down to the pit. Sing praises to the Lord, all you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. Now, as you read this passage, the very first verse, or even before the first verse, it pops out to us. It says that this is a song of David. David himself wrote this psalm. It's a psalm which he had written to praise God. Now, would David know to be a guy to, we know David to be a guy who is humble before the Lord. He's a king of Israel. He's actually the second king of Israel. He is the guy who was chosen by God because, according to 1 Samuel chapter 13, verse 14, he is a man who is after God's own heart. He loved the Lord, not like Saul, who was a man who sought after his own benefit. David was a man who was humble before the Lord, who sought after the will of God for his own life. This is in display of his own life in the very beginning, even before he was picked as king of Israel. We see in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 11, whilst Jesse was there presenting all of his sons to Samuel for choice of a king, David was no longer, nowhere there in sight. It says that he was the youngest and he was keeping the sheep. The one who keeps the sheep is the one who is humble. The one who keeps the sheep is the one who does not magnify himself. The one who keeps the sheep is the one who will serve others. And David was the one who served others. He was the one who waited for God's plan for his life. And yet God loved this about David because David was not the one to honor himself. He's not the one to exalt himself. He's the one to honor God and wait upon God's plan for his life. Eventually what God did is that he rose David up to be king of Israel. There was much trouble, much tribulation in his journey. And we'll talk about this in this psalm. However, at the middle of his journey, when David was having much joy in Christ, and much joy in God, and much joy in following God for his life, much joy in enjoying his relationship with God, 
you want to build God a temple. You want to build God a particular house for God's dwelling. And before this, God dwelt in a tent. Not physically, since all of the earth is God's kingdom. God does not dwell in any tent. But symbolically, he dwelt in a sanctuary, in a tent, as a way of communicating to the people of God that he is among them. He says this in Exodus chapter 25, verse 8, where he commanded the Israelites to build him a sanctuary so that he may dwell in their midst. He wanted to dwell among God's people. He said, build me a tent, and I will dwell among you. When David rose up in power and he was enjoying all the benefits which God's given to him, he looked at his life. He said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. So he thought, he thought this to himself. He said, I will build a house for the Lord. I will build a magnificent house for the Lord that will demonstrate the magnificence of God. However, David wasn't the one to build this. Because David was a man of bloodshed. He fought many wars, and God wanted a man of peace, his son Solomon, to build the temple. Still, David felt very privileged to be in the preparation for this temple. So he prepared for this temple. He set it up for his son Solomon so Solomon could hit out of the park when he's about to build the temple. First Chronicles chapter 22, verse 14 to 16 talks about all the things which David had prepared in order to build God's temple. He says this, and this is a conversation with David and Solomon, with great pains uh, provided for the house of the Lord 100,000 talents of gold, a million talents of silver and bronze and iron beyond weighing. There's so much of it. Timber and stones too. I provided to those you must add. You have the abundance of workmen, stonecutters, masons, carpenters, and all kinds of craftsmen without number, skilled in working gold, silver, bronze, and iron, rise and work. The Lord be with you. Says to Solomon, I set you up. All you have to do is hit it out of the park. I've given to you all the things you needed in order to build the temple. And if David does all these things in the preparation temple, certainly we can imagine that he also wrote a psalm, like Psalm 30, for the dedication of the temple. Because when the temple was built, he was no longer on earth. But he wrote the psalm so that the psalm could be used as part of the dedication of the temple of God when it is built. And this was a history of the psalm. Actually, throughout all the history of Israel, according to tradition, is actually recorded that around uh, 167 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphany desecrated the temple of God, when Jews reconsecrated the temple of God, they used the psalm and used the psalm for the dedication of his temple from that point on as well. So this psalm is used as a point of dedication for the temple of God. It is for this purpose. It begins with these words in verse 1. I will extol you, O Lord, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. It's a very personal psalm. It's a very touching psalm. David is writing about his personal life, his experience with God as he is expressing Which is presented here by the Hebrew language is one of a person who's sitting in a bucket and God is lifting him up out of the well. He's lifting him up out of this pit, of this mire of destruction. He's saving him. And David is experiencing salvation from God from a dark well. He's been drawn up by God. There are things which David wants to thank God for as far as what his drawing up looks like. He says, you have not let my foes rejoice over me in verse 1. So David's recounting all the times in his life where he fought with his enemies, when people are against him, 
when people want to put him down, people want to kill him, but God saved them so that his foes will not be able to rejoice over him. We could think of several incidents in David's life where David was rescued by God from his foes. We think about Goliath. Goliath is a person who was fighting against David, and certainly God had rescued David from the foe of Goliath. We can think about this in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 10, the story of Goliath. Goliath was this man who challenged the nation of Israel to a duel, saying that if you fight against me, and if you win, I will serve you. But if I win, all of Israel will serve me. And none of Israel dared to fight against Goliath except for David. This is what Goliath said in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 10. He said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man so that we may fight together. I defy you. And none dared to stand up to him except for David. And David said to Goliath in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 45, You come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And with these words, David picked up stones, and he put a stone in his sling. He swung the stone onto Goliath's forehead. He sunk deep into Goliath's forehead. Goliath fell over, and David went over there and cut off his head with his own sword. David had won. By God's strength, David defeated Goliath. God did not allow the Goliath to rejoice over David. And there was another incident where David had to fight against another foe, King Saul. King Saul was the enemy of David at this point, even though in the beginning he was an ally to David. But when David rose up in power, David became more and more popular. People began to say, David killed tens of thousands, and King Saul only thousands. And Saul was not happy with David. So he said to his Jonathan, in first son Jonathan, in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 1, and also to all these other sons and servants, that they shall kill David. And David was on the run. If you read through 1 Samuel, he was on the run for almost a decade, 10 years, running from Saul. It's a long time. However, David waited upon the Lord. David trusted in God. Whenever he had a chance to kill Saul, he did not. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6, the servants are telling David, go and kill Saul. This is your moment. But David said, the Lord forbid, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. He refused to kill Saul. He waited upon the Lord. Eventually, God did his work in King Saul's life. God had Saul killed by the Philistines. David had not need to do this work. He trusted in God, and he rose up to be the king of Israel. Again, God delivered David from his foes. God delivered David physically, not just from his foes. We also see in verse 2, he delivered David from illness and sicknesses. He said in verse 2, Oh, Lord, my God, I cry out to you for help, and you have healed me. Now, we're not sure exactly when David was sick. But he was sick at a point in his life, and he experienced healing from God physically. We know that there was a plague at the end of 2 Samuel, and certainly David could have been sick at that point. So he cried out to God for healing, and God healed him. God healed him physically. God delivered David from his foes. At the end, in verse 3, he gave the summary. He said, Oh, Lord, you have brought my soul up from Sheol. Restore to me life from those who go down to the pit. You have saved me from Sheol. Sheol is a place of dwelling of the dead for both the believers and unbelievers. In the Old Testament, there was no separation. I mean, there is a separation in Sheol, Abraham's bosom, and the rest of the Sheol. For believers to live in Abraham's bosom, for the rest of the unbelievers to live in the rest of the Sheol. 
But Sheol was never ever talked about as being a pleasant, happy place in the Old Testament. It's always a gloomy and sad place because they're waiting for the Messiah to come to rescue them from a place of Sheol, to lift them up to the paradise, to give them evidence of God's salvation in the very coming of the Messiah. Sheol is a sad place. It's a place for the dead. It's not similar, it's not unsimilar to what we would feel about death today. I mean, death in general is a sad thing for us to go through. If you were to die or you were to experience sickness or about to die, it's a sad thing. We'll pray for you not to die. We'll pray for you to be healed because death itself is a consequence of our own sins. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 says, The wages of sin is death. When God rescued David from death, David was happy. He was thankful. He was thankful for God for bringing him out of shield. And he was thankful to God for restoring his life from those who go down to the pit, to the grave. He's thankful to God for God's physical protection. So he ends up in verse 4, sing praises to the Lord, all you his saints, and give thanks to his holy name. He's thanking God for God's physical protection. Do you thank God for your physical protection? And certainly we do too as well. We're thanking God for the years we live. We're thanking God for our birthdays. We're thanking God for our lives, our anniversaries. And we should do so because God is the one who keeps us alive. Did you know that you're here not because of wisdom, not because of your abilities, not because you are wise in your own living, not because you made the right choices. You're here ultimately because God deemed you to be here. You're here because God's given you grace to live. This is something that Jesus even himself told to Pilate when Pilate was about to kill him and say, don't you know that I have power over your life? I can kill you any minute I want. And Jesus said to Pilate in John chapter 19, verse 11, you have no authority over me at all unless it has been given to you from above. You have no authority over me. You have no power over me. In fact, you cannot make me live any bit less than what God's called me to live. We are here because God sustains us, and we should be thankful. And for that reason, amen, we can clap for that. For that reason, we can be brave. We can be courageous to do God's work. In the book of Acts, we see this. Paul thanks God in Acts chapter 18, verse 10, when God says to them, For I am with you, and no one will attack you and harm you, for I am many in the city who are my people. God promises Paul, saying, Because I have a purpose and a plan for you, you are invincible until the day I take you home. Do you have that confidence in the Lord? Do you have that thankful heart before God? For that reason, you could go to church in Hollywood, even though Hollywood is not exactly the safest place where you go to church in. But it's not any safer in God's sight than go to the church in Beverly Hills or any other safer community because God actually is the one who keeps your life. He's the one who sustains you. He's the one who keeps you here so you could be brave and courageous to do God's will. In that light, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 through 10, my grace, that is God saying, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
So Paul's response is this, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For, for when I'm weak, then I am strong. I may go through hard times in my life, but I will not be afraid. I might go through persecution, hardships, and difficulties, but I'm here because of the grace of God. My confidence is that of Psalm chapter 91, verse 10, where it says, A thousand men fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but you will not come near to you. You will not come near to you. You may see others fall, but because God protects you, you will live. This is our experience with God. Amen. In our salvation. Those who are his saints to thank God for it because our lives are in his hands. We're protected by God. God has full control over our lives. So David here is for thanking God in his salvation of God for God's protection. It's something we should thank God for. Every minute here is because God's kept you. No one can take your life away from you. God is the one who keeps you. God is the one who will call you home. We can rest in that. But not only are we thanking God for his physical protection, we also thank God for his discipline in our lives, for his discipline in growing us. We see this in verse 5 through 10. He says, For his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for a night, but joy comes with the morning. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. I was dismayed. To you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. So now we see here, as David is thanking God for God's physical protection, he changes tone here. He talks about God's anger. That is for a moment. And, and a mourning that is going to tarry for the night. What is he talking about? Why is he switching tone, talking about the anger of God? Why is he talking about weeping all of a sudden? Well, it turns out that God does become angry. He becomes angry toward believers and also toward unbelievers. Now, there's a different kind of anger, as we see in the New Testament. God's not angry toward us in the sense of judging us because the judgment is already placed upon Christ. But in the Hebrew understanding of anger, it's very pictorial, very poetic. It's talking about anger in the sense of God angry at us as a father who is passionate toward us for our good. Aren't you passionate for your children? Passionate so that they would do well? Sometimes that passion would lead you to a slow Long-suffering anger at times? Certainly that happens with the Lord. It's that word, Iraq, F. F is the word anger in Hebrew, but when it's composed with this Hebrew word, Iraq, which means slow or long, it composes this word called long-suffering. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 says, The Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, is long-suffering and abounding steadfast love and faithfulness. See, when we disobey God, there's anger. But it's not an anger toward the unbeliever. It's a passionate desire for us to do God's will, for us to live according to God's ways. And if you live long enough, you experience God's discipline. It's not a discipline. It's not a judgment against unbelievers, but it's a discipline for our good. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 through 6, addresses this discipline. It says this, Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him. 
For the Lord disciplines those he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. You live long enough. At first, you may thank God for his physical protection. We do receive God's physical protection. But you live long enough as a Christian, you are going to receive some shape and form, the discipline, the growing process of God. God's going to discipline you because we do sin at times, and we need that discipline. Sometimes we don't consider it discipline because it's loving, and we thankfully receive that. But indeed, it's discipline from the Lord. God cares for us. He's passionate toward us so that we would do His will. It's not dissimilar to a parent who's passionately rebuking their child. So the child would listen and pay attention. But this rebuke is not a long rebuke. It's not a simmering rebuke. It's not a guilt-tripping rebuke. Sometimes parents could do that. But we shouldn't to be short, right? And to the point. Because this is God's discipline as well. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 10, it says this in the, in the, for the parents, comparing the parents and God. For they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good so that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God does discipline. He rebukes us. He gives us times in our lives. We learn our lesson. But it's only for a short period of time because He wants us ultimately to experience His goodness the peaceful fruit of righteousness that comes alongside discipline. And so in this sense, we see in verse 5, his anger, his long-suffering anger, his patience, his passionate desire for us, his patient anger is only for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. He wants us to benefit forever in him as a result is lessons for us. We're going to mature. We're going to experience trials. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4, it says, We're to count all joys, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds. For we know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness has its full effect, that you may have complete, or you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Sometimes discipline and trials come hand in hand. We don't know which one is which. It comes both together at the same time. And God says, you know what? This is for you so that you may be complete, lacking in nothing. When trials come, when disciplines come, we weep. We weep, as verse 5 says. Weeping happens. It's hard. These are hard times. These are sorrowful times. We're wondering when it's going to be over. But God says it will be over one day. It will tear you for the night. It's going to be a hard time for you. You may Endure the consequences of your sin. If it's not the consequences of your sin, you may endure just the trial, which is apart from your consequence. Like Job. Job did nothing wrong, but yet he experienced the trial. There's weeping that may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. God will produce his results in you. So David experienced this. David had this experience in his life, and he's going to recount this experience in verse 6. He says this, as for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. This is not a good statement from David. David in his prosperity, in his time of success, said, I am doing really well. I will never be moved. I will never be in a sad state. I will never be in a state where 
I will be apart from the success. He had forgotten about God. He had become prideful. First John chapter 2, verse 16 says the three things that distract men to sin are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. David suffered from all three. It begins with the pride of life. And then he sinned against God. See, at the success of his life in 2 Samuel chapter 10, he had conquered all the enemies before him. All the enemies have bowed down to David. The Ammonites, the Syrians have all bowed down to David. There's no more obstacles in David's life. No more Saul, no more Goliath, no more anything that he, which he had to depend upon God for. He got proud. He said, I shall never be moved. And he began to stroll around the top of his home. 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. When kings go out to battle, he was staying home, resting, relaxing, being confident, not being aware of the temptations around him. He rose up from the couch one afternoon and saw the woman bathing. We saw this in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 2. The woman was Bathsheba. And David lusted after her and took her for his wife. He even killed Uriah to do so. It was a grave sin against God. But it all came from his overconfidence. As a result of that, God had withdrew his blessings from David. David's life was never really the same after 2 Samuel chapter 11. You can see this tremendous shift in David's life. All because 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 10, Nathan said to David, Now therefore, because done this, the sword shall never depart from your house. You lost your blessings because you've done this. God had hid his face from David. He turned off the faucet of blessing. This is when David remembered to be humble. He said in verse 7, By your favor, O Lord, you made my mountain stand strong. Now I remember, even though I said, I thought in my prosperity, I shall never be moved, but actually it was you who built me up. It wasn't me. It wasn't my success. It wasn't my ability. It wasn't my wisdom. It wasn't my accomplishment, my own strength, but it was you. It's your favor, O Lord. You made my mountain strong. It was you, after all. And when you hid your face, when you turned off the faucet of the blessing, I was dismayed. Have you experienced that? At some point in your life, you say, you know what, I'm following God, but then this thing happened. You sinned, and maybe you're in discipline. Maybe you're in trials. Maybe God is teaching you. What is your response? Well, first of all, you may be dismayed. You may be sad and say, well, God, where are you? Where are you now in my suffering? Are you still the same God to me when I was younger? Are you the same God to me when I was obeying you and I didn't have these baggages which I was carrying and now I'm carrying? How did David respond? Verse 8, he said this. He said, to you, O Lord, I cry, and to the Lord, I plead for mercy. As a result of God's discipline, I cry out to you even more. I have not abandoned God. I have not said, God, I don't need you anymore. I have not said, God, because you have not blessed me, I'm not going to go to you anymore. Instead, I'm clinging onto you even harder because of your discipline. I'm hugging you as you are disciplining me like we would do with our child. What a beautiful picture of David and his relationship with God. I think of a Christian allegory in this book called Pilgrim's Progress, and all of us should read it. It's written by a Puritan named John Bunyan. He had this story, and the part of the story is about a man named, a man named Christian. He's, you know, he's representative of all Christians. He's walking with this man named Pliable. 
And pliable is what his name means. He is pliable. He's easily influenced. So it's walking with Christian and walking toward God, walking towards pathway of celestial city where they're going to reach God. And pliable and Christian both fell into the swamp called the swamp of despondency. And we don't know why they fell. They just fell into the swamp. Both of them fell into it. And the swamp of despondency symbolizes a, a moment in our life which we don't know where God is. Okay? We're suffering, we're in pain, and we don't know where God is. And this is when Christian first became a Christian. He fell into the swamp. And pliable, when he was in the swamp, complained. And he got himself out of the swamp and says, if this is what a fallen Christian, a fallen God is like, then I will never ever follow God again. I don't want to be in this place where I'm inside this mire, inside this swamp of despondency, wondering where God is, and suffering. I'm going to go back home to the city of destruction. You know what Christian did? Pilate went home, but Christian is a swamp. Instead of going home, he cried out, help, help, mercy. And a person named help came to help him. It's John Bunyan's writing. That person is God himself. Help lifted Christian up from the swamp and set him again on his way. Christian cried out to God in the moment of his trial, in the moment of his discipline. How would you respond to the Lord when you've been disciplined? How would you respond to God in the moment of your suffering, whether it's just a trial outside of your discipline, even the trial of your discipline? How would you respond? I can think of the two different people that responded very, two, very differently in the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Two people of Peter and Judas. Remember their story? They both sinned against God greatly. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. Both of them sinned against God greatly. But Peter responded to that discipline of God, that trialful night, very disciplined, very differently than Judas. Peter wept. We see this in Matthew chapter 26, verse 75. He went down and wept bitterly after he had denied Christ. And later on, when Christ restored him, he said to Jesus, you know that I love you. You know that I love you. He's repenting before God. Judas, when we study Matthew chapter 27, we saw this too. He also felt bad. He felt very, very bad for what he did. But he never, ever cried out to God for mercy and grace. He tried to get rid of the guilt. In all kinds of ways, right? Giving the money back and you try to not think about it anymore. Eventually, when he couldn't get rid of the guilt, what did he do? He killed himself. He used his own strength to relieve of his guilt, his shame, instead of crying to God for mercy and for grace. He was under a trial, as Peter was under a trial, but Peter clinged unto Jesus even more. So what is your response in the moment of trial in your life? I think of Jesus' own illustration in Matthew chapter 13 where he talks about there are four different kinds of soils. Focus on two, the shallow soil and the good soil. With the shallow soil, the seed falls to the shallow soil. It does not take root because the shallow root or shallow soil cannot take root. So when the sun comes up, it dries up the plant. It dies. What happened to the good soil? Well, the good soil takes up the seed. The seed is able to take deep into the root. When the sun comes up, and I would you know, imagine the sun needs to come up because the plant needs sun, Shines upon this plant. The plant gets all the nutrients. It grows and grows. Matthew chapter 13, verse 27 says it yields fruit. In one case, 100 for another 60, another 30. Yields all this fruit. While the one that is in shallow soil dies. I couldn't think about the sun. The sun is like a trial. When the sun comes up, it dries up those who have no root. 
But the same sun proliferates the plant that has real fruit, real root, that is. It's Spurgeon who said, the same sun which melts the wax, what? Hardens the clay. Same sun that melts the wax, hardens the clay. Trials differentiate you with the rest of the people who pretend to be believers. If you're a true believer in Christ, the trial will enable you to cling harder to Jesus, to become more like him, while those who are not believers, who pretend to be, will simply fall away because they don't want the trial anymore. So we see here David thanking God for the discipline. It's a hard moment in David's life, but yet David thanks God for this. So he thanks God for God's protection. He thanks God for God's discipline, but not only so, he's going to thank God overall for his faithfulness in all of his life. He thanks God for God's faithfulness. You see this in verse 9 through 12. He continues on. He says, What profit is there in my death? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it tell you or tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Lord, and be merciful to me. O Lord, be my helper. You have turned for me my mourning to dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness so that my glory may sing of your praise and not be silent. O Lord, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. As David now is coming to grips with the fact that he's been disciplined by God and he's thanking God for it, he's now asking God to save him, but not for the sake of his own earthly benefit. He's asking God to save him. It's a tone of changing his own perspective to God's perspective. He wants God to save him so that he can give glory to God. He says in verse 9, What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will the tell of your faithfulness? He wants to tell of God's faithfulness. He wants to praise God as a result of God saving him. God rescued him from his terrible times. And then it switches in verse 11. He says, you have turned for me my mourning to dancing. All of a sudden, he's happy in the Lord. He's dancing. And he says, you have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. What happened, David? Did God save you? Did God change your circumstances? As far as we read in the book of 2 Samuel, we actually read that David's life was not that much different after Absalom. Absalom was one of the hardest trials, but after that, things are still not that fun for David. It's still hard after that. There was the curse of the Gibeonites with the famine. There was the curse of the plague as a result of the census. David's life was hard all the way to the end, but he's learned something. As all us mature believers out need to, uh, we are, need to learn, is that our joy, our gladness, our peace in the Lord is independent of our circumstances. It is not so in the very beginning of our Christian faith. It is hard for us to learn because in the beginning of our Christian faith, we pray and we ask God, God gives to us. In some ways, God is treating us as a little child, right? We need that encouragement in the Lord to continue to follow him. But then after we follow Jesus, after a while, we begin to say, you know what, God, you don't really respond to my prayers like I used to. I have to pray a lot harder. You experience that? I have to, yeah, I have to pray, make sure I'm praying for the right things. You begin to respond to me in such such a way that it's no longer about me, but now I'm seeking after you. What does you want? What what, what is it that you want for my life? How do you see the situation? I want to pray according to your will. And when I know that I'm in your will, no matter what, even in that difficult circumstance, I'm dancing. I'm glad. As long as I'm confident that I'm doing what you want me to do, even though 
and we'll see this later on. In second service, Dakota will preach on this. Even though the fig tree has not blossomed, right? Even though the field has not produced, I will give thanks to the Lord, to the God of my salvation. You have turned my mourning to dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and closed me with gladness. I think of the Old Testament illustration of this, and one of the things that bothered the Old Testament saints, especially those who are faithful, is the Babylonian conquest. It bothered them because Israel at the place where they're conquered by the Babylonians. Now, they deserved it. The prophets did not want this. Jeremiah did not want this. They wanted to see Israel flourish. But it was a hard time. It was a part of God's discipline, part of God's trial. Description of this is seen in Lamentations chapter 2, verse 10 through 12, where it says, The elders of the daughters of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have, been, they have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed down their heads to the ground. This is after Jerusalem been destroyed by the Babylonians. The wall is on fire. Houses on fire. The elders are wondering what is happening. The women are bowed down to the ground. Jeremiah is saying this. Yet in all this, he said in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22-23, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. How can Jeremiah say this when all is chaotic around him? It's because he sees something that no one else sees. He begins to see life from the eyes of God. He sees that life which God meant for us to have in eternity. As Revelation chapter 21 verse 4 says, there will come a day, not just today, and God will rescue the Israelites, but there will come a day in heaven when all of our mourning, crying, or pain, or anything that is sinful in this world will be removed and all the former things will have passed away. There's a day coming when God will rescue us from everything in this world that hurts us. And while they do in this world, it's for the sake of us growing to be more like him. So therefore, we in this world, ultimately, in the challenge of our lives, are called to become more like Christ so that we may see this world more and more so from the eyes of Christ. That's not in the very beginning of our Christian walk. We may not be comfortable with that because we just want our earthly benefits, such as, such as the, 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 the movement of prosperity gospel. And some people love this so much, and people talk about this. You can get this and get that, get this and get that. If you follow God, and sometimes God does give that because there are many, many new believers in that movement, sometimes not even believers at all. But then as you grow in Christ, we can find out, you know what? God is shifting his relationship with me. Not that he's not good. He's still good. But then I begin to want the things that he wants, not just things that I want. I want him to be the Lord of my life. So in this case, we see the encouragement given to us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where we're to look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, for, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The not prosperity gospel, however way that we want to mention it. But our prosperity ultimately is not in this world. Our prosperity is next to the right hand of the throne of God. That's what Jesus looked to. He had the eyes, eyes of eternity. The challenge for us to have that, those eyes as well. How do we have the eyes of Christ? 
by continually enduring in trials so that we may become more like Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verse 6-7 through seven, says that we are to rejoice even now for a little while, if necessary, that have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter is saying this. Your lives is at this point. God is purifying you as gold is being refined. See, the goldsmith refines that gold. It's not fun while it's being refined because you're under that heat. But that heat is making the impurities rise to the top, and the goldsmith keeps scraping off that impurity until it becomes pure, until the goldsmith looks at that gold and he sees a reflection of his own face. That goldsmith is God. See, God wants to see a reflection of himself in you. So that is the journey. That is the journey. It's not an easy journey. It is a journey of thankfulness. Thankfulness to God in all circumstances of our lives. Thankful to God for our physical protection. Thankful to God for our discipline. Thankful to God for His faithfulness in all of the areas of our lives. See, ultimately, we need both light and darkness to grow. Did you know that plant, any plant in this world, need both light and darkness? You may not know that, because we think, oh, the plant needs light because it needs photosynthesis, a process which produces fuel for itself. Light shines on the plant with carbon dioxide, mixes it all in, it produces sugar, and sugar is the nutrient for the plant and also produces oxygen. Plant needs that. But did you know plant also needs darkness? It's during darkness that plant uses the fuel to build its cells. It's during darkness the plant stretches out and elongates itself. It's during times of darkness, the plant looks for the sunlight and says, I will stretch out more to reach that sunlight. Christian living is much the same way. You see, during times of light and brightness, who are absorbing the goodness of God, learning more about God, learning more about who He is. But it's during the times of darkness we apply it. Times of darkness, those information becomes conviction and eventually becomes our affection because we mature in times of darkness. James chapter 1, verse 2 to 4 says, We're to count it all joy, my brothers. We meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness has its full effect, so that we may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. May we have the eyes of God as well to see this happen in our own lives. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning which we are reflecting upon our own lives and what we need to be thankful for. It is indeed a complex issue when we think about our own lives and certainly when we think about our lives and especially for those who are um, following Jesus for a while, we know that we have made some mistakes and we are in some way, shape, and form in a place where we are because of some decision in our lives which we know shouldn't have been. But we also know, Lord, that we're here because of your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you have sustained us in every moment of our lives. Give us reason to be thankful. You have provided for us so that we are able, we're able to cling on to you even further, even harder, even with even more fervency as a result of our sin, as a result of our trial, because ultimately it's all about you. It's not about our comfort. It's not about just living a blessed earthly life. It's about you. It's about us clinging to you and find you to be our all in all. We thank you, Lord. 
Help us, Lord, to cling close to you, God, in every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.